This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so there are a few people probably in the investing world as well-known and candidly as influential as Chuck Schwab. So thrilled to have him here in our studio in New York City. He is the founder, of course, of the Charles Schwab Corporation, a pioneer in many respects. Great to have you with us. Well, Jason, thank you. I love to come down and see Bloomberg. It just keeps expanding your communication capabilities are wonderful. Wonderful for our business, actually. Well, we appreciate that. So let's talk about your business. I want to talk about your book. You've got a new book out. It's called Invested. But before we get to that, I got to ask you about sort of the news in the industry over the last couple of weeks. Pretty exciting. So why now? What What's happening well, that's causing Well, we just want to make sure our investors get the best deal possible. And that's called free. Yeah. Free <laughs> trades. And so I've been on that pursuit that mission basically for almost 40 years because I cut the commissions way back when when deregulation was permissible and I've been on that quest for now 40 years so now we finally made it happen zero commission for transactions now you might have to pay for other things but for transactions it's zero right so Chuck what's great for customers is free but how does that affect your business some people are saying it could impact your revenue by a hundred million dollars a quarter. How do you make up for that loss in revenue? Well, it's about four percent of our revenue has been lost because of that. But every time we've ever made it a better deal for our clients, we get more clients, and we will make it up in volume, so to speak. Because we have many other services. We have money market funds. We have mutual funds. We have advised accounts. We have other ways to make some money, uh, depending on what the client is looking for, uh, different levels of service, and so, but trades will be free. And so we just hope more people will come and enjoy the, the benefits that Schwab provides. So when you talk about volume, Chuck, that obviously means that probably scale matters. Scale. You've got a big piece of the market now. Are we going to see some consolidation here? I think it's very possible. I don't know whether we'll be successful in that pursuit, but I think in the industry, you're going to see more consolidation, more firms getting together. You just have to have that scale and volume. And so we're prepared to do it if, if the opportunity arrives, but if not, we're perfectly happy to go it alone. Chuck, outside of volume, what do you say to critics from the street or companies like Moody's who had been taking a look at your credit rating after this decision? What else do you say to them about how you can also make up and grow despite this? Well, it. You can look at the past. It's pretty easy to see every time we've ever cut our commissions, it's always led to more business. It's been very consistent over many, many years. So this is not the first time we've cut commissions. It just happened to be this time to zero. Our cost uh, in terms of running our business is extremely low. We're probably the lowest cost provider in the business. Uh, it costs us about 15 basis points uh, per dollar of asset that we have at Schwab. And to run the business, that means all our websites, all the services, the branches, and so forth. So we really put a lot of attention to our costs. And so we're able to deliver to our clients a better value, we think, because of that. And so we're highly competitive, 
and we'll continue to be competitive. We have many new ideas. Of course, technology has been really our friend in so many ways. Mm -hmm. It's allowed us to be more efficient and deliver our efficiency on in terms of lower prices to our clients. All right, so you talked about sort of the history, your history in this business, Chuck, and you lay that out so nicely in this book. And it's funny, you know, the book is called Invested, the subtitle, Changing Forever the Way Americans Invest. I've read a lot of books, and I know that often people are given to hyperbole in their titles. This actually isn't hyperbole, it, it did, it changed things. I think it changed Wall Street dramatically for the better. Right. I think so many people have adopted some of the same things that we put in place early on, and people thought, oh wow, it does work, it does attract customers. Do the right thing for customers, and may, my goodness, people come to your front door. Right, so using that as a backdrop and thinking about putting this book together, I would imagine you went back and thought about those sort of catalytic moments over the course of your career, not just the founding, but some pretty interesting moments along the way, including a buyout that didn't go, an acquisition that didn't go the way you wanted, an LBO then following on to take it back. Tell us about those moments that really stick out to you. Well, it's all laid out in the book, Invested, and I had a great fun, actually, it took me two years to write the book with some, a little bit of help along the way, but all the stories are my stories. And it was about starting out with four people back in 1973, four people. Now we have over 20,000, we have millions of customers and all that, it's all that great success. But the book talks about, this is not a straight line up at all. There's been a lot of, a lot of downs, a lot of things that we learned along the way. It took persistency, it took commitment, it took passion by many, many people who helped me along the way to make a great company. And so I thought it would be worthwhile to tell people about this great entrepreneurial experience, but also it lets my employees know what we stand for as a company, the purpose of the company, how we help customers and why we love our customers. And also we'd like to have our, our, our customers themselves, our clients read the book too, so they know our commitment. And why was taking back the independence of your company away from Bank of America so important to how Charles Schwab operates today? Well, I think it's highly important that you, we need to have a company, a investment company like ours in place. There's so many of the, the giant firms of these big investment banking firms that don't really think exclusively about individual investors. We do. That's all we do is think about our clients. How can we do a better job and how the new innovations using new technology to come up with new ideas, how to make their life better in terms of their financial life. And so, Chuck, as you think about your customers right now, let's talk about them, how they're feeling right now. We're in the midst of the longest expansion, economic expansion in history. I yeah, mean, people are feeling pretty good. The equity markets, a little volatility here and there, but generally the consumer feels good. Tell us what you learned because you see them trading every day. Well, I think our investors, you know, people who've been with us for a few years, are, know about the markets. They know markets go up nicely and everyone's really happy about that. They also know markets go down. Free markets go up and down. That's the fundamental thing you have to understand about investing. And after that, you find out the potential from investing, the, how you can really change the wealth. Wealth for yourself, wealth for your family, and gives you all these new opportunities that you might have as you go through life. So, you know, the only thing that really grows 
normally like real growth is companies. Mm-hmm. So investing in companies is a wonderful way to go about it. I always look at buildings, for instance, one building you buy, and that building always remains the same. It never changes in size. It always remains the same. Stocks can grow from one hamburger shop to 10 to 10,000. You know, one coffee maker can take a couple cup of coffees and all of a sudden is making millions mm-hmm. a day. And that's, but that takes place over a period of time. That's called growth. And, and that's what companies are able to do. Some of the great companies are even able to do even more growth than I'm talking about now. Right. More growth coming? I, I think innovation in America is profound. I live on the West Coast where so much of the new innovations pop up at times and it's it's just it's going to continue the internet has been just unleashed so much capability i think uh, and communication and so i think there's huge opportunities new frontiers ahead we just have to hang on keep our safe safety belts on and right make the right happen well, and you're speaking my language, given I'm out here in San Francisco uh-huh. in the midst of all of that uh, innovation that you describe. Yeah. You were right in that the markets go up, the markets go down. Investors know this. But as you look, do you get a sense that there is a special type of nervousness from investors right now that didn't exist you know, a, a decade ago, two decades ago? Or does this feel business as usual? It's no different today than it was 10 years ago or 20 or 30. Let me tell you. Uh, you go back, it's sort of interesting to do this, go back some time and read, go to the library and get some of the newspapers of 10 years ago, and you'll see what I mean. There's always some issue going on, and it, it, and it changes, and that's what the dynamics are of a free society. It keeps changing. The, the story's a little different, but there's still fear and greed, fear and greed is sort of up and down along the way, and so just understand as an investor, you've got to be a cool as a cucumber, let me right. tell you, and just hang in there make sure you're diversified don't put it everything in one little investment make sure you have 10 20 or some index funds or things like that that really uh, give you a breadth of experience and exposure to investing and so before we let you go i gotta ask you what's the one thing you want to make sure people take away from this book i think i think it's about the values that our company has and how sustainable it is and I wish more companies were able to keep those values front and center, not only with their employees, but let their customers know what we stand for and what they can expect. And how do you do that? How do you do that on a daily basis? How do you chuck Schwab? I don't know. I've basis? done, I spend a lot of time in different branches throughout the country. I try to, and try to instill in my executives and my CEO who's embodied at Walt Benger, fantastic uh, how we have maintained our values throughout right. these years. All right, Chuck Schwab, we're going to leave it there. What a treat uh, to catch up with you. The book is called Charles, I'm sorry, the author is Charles Schwab. The book is called <laughs> Invested, Changing Forever, The Way Americans Invest. And I have to say, Taylor, reading into it a little bit, the stories are profound. This is a story of America in many, many ways because it talks about the evolution, not just of the investing world, not just of Wall Street, but also the way America has really evolved in many ways. Take it to the bank. Bank of America reporting earnings. Our team all over it. And we've got it two ways here. Jenny Serene, finance reporter for Bloomberg. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York City. And Arnold Kakuda, he is senior financials credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Jenny, I want to start with you. So break it down. Investment bank sort of coming alive there at B of A. 
It was um, it was definitely a surprise. I mean, much better performance than what analysts were anticipating. And when we heard from Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan today, he really pointed to the fact that they've been actually hiring hundreds of bankers and that those investments are starting to finally pay off. He said that one of the big things they've tried to do is um, actually give bankers less work. <laughs> and so it's kind of a funny thing. They cover less companies. And so he says they're able to just, you know, drive these deeper and deeper relationships. So that's really helped turn that business around. Arnold, give me your take here. When we take a look at Bank of America, it is such a consumer-facing bank. And so that's a bank where when we look to them, we can get a really good gauge on the health of the consumer. Mortgages, credit cards, car loans, they seem to be crushing it, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, before that, I could say, you know, in New York, we're about to get, you know, crushed with rain right here. But, you know, for, for the bank earnings, I just have to say it's been a perfect storm on the good side, right? So coming into the quarter, I think the expectations are really low. Um, but then, you know, we've had uh, a surge in kind of risk on. We have yields higher, I think, you know. And so, uh, you know, all these things are really positive for bank earnings. You know, we had expectations cut back. And then, and then so really, I think that's what we're seeing right now is, you know, uh, risk on movement. And then the banks are, you know, um, you know, meeting and, you know, exceeding expectations. And, um, you know, in terms of Bank of America, you know, yes, very consumer oriented. Um, you know, they are uh, asset quality in terms of, you know, consumers paying their loans back on time. That, that's been really, really good. Right. And so, you know, a concern is or, or good or bad, I, I guess you can look at kind of the loan growth, 6 percent, which which seems nice. But, you know, in, in a 2 percent growth environment, hey, you know, we're, we're kind of concerned that if that continues, we'll, we'll, you know, is, is that being a little bit too aggressive? Although, you know, the bank says that um, they are taking market share in this environment and the, and the asset quality looks good. So, you know, it, we are um, it, it seems OK now. We'll pick up on that, Jenny, because if they're taking market share, they're probably taking it from someone someone else. Like, that, that's how this works. Uh, synthesize this for, with what we've heard from the other banks so far, especially as it relates to the consumer business. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. So Bank of America said today that they've opened a lot of branches over the last few, uh, well, over the last year, really, renovated a lot more. They actually entered three new markets in the last year. And so I think, um, you know, we've seen similar growth stories at the likes of JP Morgan. Um, Wells Fargo is a little bit of a different yeah. uh, beast. But I think in general, they're probably taking it from the smaller regional banks around the country where they really can't uh. keep up on the tech spending. They really can't keep up, you know, with these nice new fancy branches. And JP Morgan and Bank of America are are looking at that and I guess seeing dollar signs. They really like the idea of that growth. Tech. Taylor, they're well, speaking your language. I know. Well, I'm going to go right there with Arnold because we on San Francisco are all focused on fintech. We've talked a lot about the rise of Zelle, peer-to-peer payments, the investments in technology, hiring coders, for example. Arnold, from your position, is Bank of America poised to be one of the leaders as they've made some heavy investments in their digital banking, online banking, you know, uh, accepting mortgage applications that were initiated from an online customer. I mean, where do they stand in the technological revolution? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think they stand shoulder to shoulder with, uh, you know, their peers and, and they have to. Right. Um, you know, like you said, you know, the, the pressures from fintech and uh, it's just you have to do this in order to be relevant. And, um, you know, it, it's also like, you know, uh, let's I think Goldman's a good example of, you know, before they used to talk about, oh, well, you know, we're managing our expenses. It's really the comp expenses as a percentage of revenue. But now they're saying, hey, wait a second, you know, we're, we're trying to invest more in technology. So you have to look at comp and non-comp. And, and within that non-comp, it's it's this investment in technology. Right. Where, where everybody's doing that. And so they're saying, hey, 
or, or you know, comp expenses are coming down, but you know, because of this is more of an infrastructure platform, you have to look at you know expenses overall as a percentage of revenue, not just comp. All right, so Jenny, I want to ask you about Brian Moynihan because I feel like he's been out and about a little bit more lately. He was on Peer to Peer with Dave Runstein. He did a panel with Carol Masser and myself over at the Global Business Forum. Feels like, and I trust your instincts on this, he's got a little more swagger these days. He's feeling a little more confident about Bank of America's place in the market. Am I misreading that? No, I don't think you are. I think it's you're right. Um, I think he he still does go back to that that mantra that they always love: responsible growth, responsible growth. So I don't think he maybe has the swagger of a Jamie Dimon, who's yeah. a little bit who of, does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think I think you're right, and I think um, it's very interesting. You know, you see some of the marketing materials that these banks put out, which you know you can put stock in whatever you want to. But Bank of America's is actually really um, it features Brian Moynihan, and it kind of shows him going to work, and he's he's just your average banker, and he's really the CEO. So I think you're right. They're giving him more play. They're giving him more FaceTime. And it's it definitely seems like it's a signal that, you know, Bank of America is starting to hit its stride. Well, and as you say, a, a very strong contrast with Wells Fargo, which is still sort of trying to pull it all together. They've got a new CEO coming in. So we'll see what happens there. Thank you so much, Jenny Serene, finance reporter for Bloomberg, Arnold Kakuda, senior financials credit analyst with BI, both here with me in New York City. little bit Taylor Riggs about the business of investing in ESG. I feel like it was candidly a little fringe a few years ago. Now it's feeling a lot more mainstream. Ian Kerwin is here with us, equity portfolio manager, Calvert International Equity Fund. He's based over in London here with me in New York City today. Ian, welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you very much. All right. So what are we seeing when it comes to ESG? Because as I said, it used to be something like, oh yeah, that's cool. Maybe people will start doing that someday. Very much in, as our colleague Tom Keen would say, in the zeitgeist right now, and people are actually making money. How are they doing it? How are you doing it? How are we doing it? I think you're right to start. It was very much a fringe movement. Um, I think people focused on environmental issues, um, and often people have the connotation of sin stocks when it comes to ESG and exclusionary type right. of investing. Today, and I think the space is moving very, very quickly. The best way that, that we talk about it is, is we believe that ESG um, is just another source of information by which to, to judge and assess a company. It doesn't deserve its own special stage. It doesn't deserve its own special spotlight. Sometimes it tells you something. Sometimes it doesn't tell you anything at all, which is like most normal financial or right. equity investing. But it's just another lens by which to assess and look at a company. Um, and I think the most important way to think about why it's become so important right now is twofold. One is our clients are demanding it. Increasingly, millennials, Generation X, they want to work for companies who are behaving in a sustainable type manner. So it's becoming important for companies when they're hiring. Um, but also, if we think about the issues that matter in ESG land today, I think a lot of things like um, tech, cybersecurity, regulation in tech, um, Automotive, electric vehicles, plastics in the ocean. A, a lot of these things existed on the fringes in, in ESG kind of off-center stage several years ago. These are now the main topics when you pull in uh, a tech investor, a automotive analyst. Right. A, th these are real tangible issues that matter, and therefore they matter for how you want to make money within a particular sector. Well, you said tech and Taylor Riggs perked up even more. 
Oh, you guys are stealing my thunder. I literally said my ears. I was thinking my ears perked up when you mentioned tech. Ian, I'm out here in San Francisco, so my world really has been consumed by tech. So what type of ESG are clients demanding when it comes to tech? When it comes to tech, I think what people expect is those issues that you read about all the time, which is understanding how companies like Google and Facebook are managing data privacy. Increasingly, the questions that are going to be asked to management is, how will you deal with regulation going forward? I mean, there's a lot of, obviously, uh, so, so part of the Democratic um, the, the thing on TV last night was, you know, how will someone yeah. like Elizabeth Warren change the landscape or, or how do you deal with this as a company? So what all this comes back to is, is asking the questions which an equity uh, investor or portfolio manager always asked, which is about strategy. How are you dealing with this as an opportunity and how are you assessing this as a risk? And that's ultimately what ESG or any other type of information is. Well, and it's interesting that, you know, as I look down your top holdings, these are well-known names. I mean, we're talking about Nestle, Unilever, uh, Novo Nordisk, Adidas, Adidas, I guess, as yep. you say, over uh, in Europe. So uh, pick one and tell me why it fits in. Adidas. Let's try Adidas. So Adidas is, a, is an interesting one. I mean, one, we like the space. And so that's what I want to start with first. We are not owning Adidas or Nestle because sustainability and its credentials around ESG come first. We are owning it because we believe we can make money out of this equity, right. and that's why it's one of our top holdings. So that's what I want to start with. It doesn't get its own little ESG spotlight. Yeah. But Nova, uh, but um, Adidas is, a, is an interesting one because there they, it's a space we like. Um, you know, that whole sports and, and you see it with Nike and right. you know, Nike had phenomenal numbers a couple of weeks ago. As, Fitness, as, as wellness, well. Fitness, all of it. wellness, where emerging market consumers are, are spending money. Adidas has that. We like their strategy around that. and We believe it's a good investment. But also Adidas has shown an awareness to, to embrace some of these sustainability issues as well in terms of how they manufacture, um, in terms of source, where they source their products about. And, and those factors are real because these matter to the profitability and the bottom line for what, for what Adidas is generating. And that's what we're interested. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, you hear the term greenwashing. It's, a, it's not about presenting a sustainability image. Right. What we're interested in is, is real facts on how the business is running itself and things that I can look at and see within my Excel spreadsheet. Right. That's when I believe this stuff comes alive. And, and Adidas is a good example of that. Well, it's uh, some great stuff. We really appreciate it. Ian Kerwin, Equity Portfolio Manager for the Calvert International equity fund. And I should note, uh, Taylor beating a lot of their peers uh, year to date in the 84th percentile, one year, uh, 92nd percentile. So doing something right there at Calvert. Inspired song choice there by our producer, Paul Brennan, talking Taylor Riggs about Dyson. I love this headline. Dyson's expensive road from vacuums to an electric vehicle flop really is a road to nowhere because they're getting out of that business. Peter Rowison was one of the writers on the story. He joins us on the phone from our Seattle bureau. And Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, here with me in New York City. So, Peter, I want to start with you because Dyson, well-regarded, but not exactly crushing it when it comes to EVs. Right. And, and uh, pe people did have some excitement about this 
project because Dyson uh, did seem to have a lot going for it. It's got the name recognition. It's got the design, the, the marketing skills. Um, it had proprietary electric battery technology. Uh, the, the owner, Sir James Dyson, owns 100% of the company, so he didn't have impatient shareholders. But the problem, as we talked to people who worked on the project, was, was that um, they tried to do they followed a strategy that everyone else is following. It's it's luxury followed by medium luxury. The the price point that we're going to have to sell the car at was a hundred thousand dollars, which was uh, difficult to swallow when you had other competitors um, doing similar uh, cars for about forty thousand. Um, and there's just there's just a lot of competition. There's a, a few dozen startups trying to do the exact same thing right now. I, I've loved this story for a long time. From the moment they actually announced the project, I was really interested in it because it spoke to just this huge strategic gamble that uh, Dyson was willing to make where no background in electric vehicles, but yet know that there's going to be a huge opportunity. They could take what they knew from, you know, filters and and air directional stuff and apply that to it. And that was one of the things they thought China would be this huge um, place that they could actually sell it and manufacture in Singapore. But then just to pull a plug on, like it feels really unceremonious almost, uh, Peter. So when when you kind of um, talk to the company, uh, what was the overall opportunity that they felt that their brand could could address in the play, in in this space? That's a good question because I don't think the company was ever very clear. Uh, they uh, were never very open about what they were working on. The only thing that came out during the year or so of active development was some sketches, which Dyson was quick to say does not reveal what we are planning. Um, and we heard from talking to several people that one issue they had continuously through the project was the, the level of, of secrecy and, and sort of pr- protection over their proprietary designs that Dyson uh, tries to have. But, but the auto industry is very collaborative and, and suppliers work together. They know what they're, uh, what they're being asked to do. They know what others are doing. And just because of the huge scale investment required, you, you need to collaborate and you need to partner with people. And in the end, Dyson looked for partners and was not able to, to find any that it could work with. Peter, is there any read through to some of the other companies in this industry? I think of Tesla, you know, which has gotten really beaten down in some ways. But frankly, they might be doing it right. They're coming out with a $35,000 car. They're coming out with a cheap price point, doing the opposite of what you've described in your story with Dyson, which, frankly, the cars were too expensive where consumers, you know, don't want to bite. Any read through to sort of what this means for other companies who are doing it right in this space? I, th- I think one lesson is is, is just what you're saying. It, it, the, the EVs need to go to mass market. I talked to Henrik Fisker, who um, developed one of the earlier uh, electric vehicles, the Karma, and uh, he he said the, that the 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 premium price point has been done. Tesla's done it. What what needs to happen now is a pickup truck, an SUV. You know, people want to want these cars to be just like the cars they're familiar with. And that, so to me, that actually speaks to 
there's still probably opportunity, but if you're going to come in, you got to like kind of sweep the leg at the get go. <laughs> and it felt a little bit like they could never, well, you know, this is based on our speculation because we really never know how far they got along with the project, but it felt like they still had so far to go and we're going to need to pour money into this that ultimately they looked at the strategic idea that they had put down and said, you know, we just can't make these, uh, these numbers add up in a way that, you know, we need the return our investment before we end up in a decade long quagmire here. And so to yeah, me, it's like, exactly it, it. it, it speaks to, you know, an appetite for high level strategy. But then at the end of the day, um, you know, we can't, uh, we can't, you know, close the doors on our existing businesses to pay for them either. Right. He was going to be plowing all of the, the profits Dyson is making, and it's making a lot of profits right now on, on vacuums and, and hair dryers. And, and there was never going to be any guarantee that it was going to be a success. Right. It, it, it was it, ultimately it was going to drain uh, the, the full two billion with no guarantee. So I feel like we've we've in the magazine, we've hit on cars and EVs a lot. Right. Yeah. And you see GM wrestling with it on a cover story a couple of weeks ago. We did, did this Tesla autopilot story. Right. They're all part of the same story, right? And you look at somebody like a Dyson who has a background in batteries and says, hey, wh what if we got into the EV game too? And the bar is high, right? Tesla put the bar high. GM is maybe capable of going there. And it shows like a startup even like a, with brand equity like Dyson might not be able to go there. All right. It's a great piece. And as Joel rightly points out, really part of a narrative arc that you can read through Business Week, including this current issue where the cover is all about Tesla's autopilot project. Peter Robeson on this story about Dyson and its failed EV venture. He joined us on the phone from Seattle. Joel was here in New York. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's do the drive to the close. Dave Donabedian here with us, Chief Investment Officer for CIBC Private Wealth Management. They're looking after about $59 billion. He's based down in Baltimore, but here with me in New York City today in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Dave, great to see you. Good to be here. All right. We were catching up a little bit before you came on air. A proud alum of the Columbia Business School talking a little bit about our broadcast from there a few weeks back. So let's talk about the market right now. I want to start with the trade war. It feels like it's receded a little bit. It was all we were talking about for a few weeks. But where does it sit now from an investor's perspective? Well, I would say uh, since Friday, it's a, I just call it a temporary respite. Yeah. Uh, right. We had a, an announcement of something that's not on paper. Uh, the Chinese side has indicated that maybe before it even gets to paper, there are some more discussions that need to go on. So it's just a temporary respite. And uh, I expect, actually, that the trade issue is going to be with us right through to the, the 2020 election. So good to have a little bit of a breather. Right. But I think it will be back. 
So then, Dave, fold this over into investment decisions. If this is not a conclusion of the trade war and you expect it continue with us uh, basically through another year, what does that mean for how you're able to make decisions right now? I think it depends on whether the trade war escalates or, or just as more of a, a, a back and forth. Those, those are two different things. Our baseline view is that the economy holds up, slows, but holds up and avoids recession uh, right through 2020. Uh, if we get the, let's say, the most extreme outcome on trade, we'd have to have to rethink that. Uh, so our view is it's definitely on the, the, the watch list, the worry list, uh, but we do see a strong domestic economy fundamentally. We think earnings growth is right. going to kind of go from, from flat to up in 2020, and obviously we're getting monetary accommodation. And again, we're, we're seeing the, the playbook that's worked for this bull market through the last decade, slow growth, low inflation, low bond yields, easy money, and you really only need modest to moderate earnings growth to propel the bull market. All right. So, Dave, earlier this afternoon, we got a look at the beige book, and that gives us a window. It feels like a sort of a level down in terms of what's going on across the U.S. economy. Certainly, based on the experts that we've had on so far, including our Bloomberg economics team, some notes of caution in there, maybe some slowing down, some ammunition maybe for those on the FOMC who want to cut rates. Again, you probably haven't, you and your team probably haven't had time to dive too deep into it, but what did you see at least from the headlines that sort of supports or gives you pause for a case going forward? Well, I, I would agree with the, 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 the tone of the way you characterize yeah. it. They're, they're, they're continuing to look for new ways to describe slowing growth. It was modest growth the right. last time. Now it's slight to modest. So absolutely, they're, they're setting the table for the notion that, that the economy is slowing, inflation's not a problem, manufacturing is weak, and rates need to come down. And, and our expectation is that uh, you know, if you look at the next three FOMC meetings between October and into January, that we'll see a a rate cut at, at two out of those three, I think probably beginning in, in late October. Right. Dave, I'm out here in San Francisco, so let's talk about tech. How are you differentiating right now between hardware and software? Is there a discount being placed to hardware given the trade tensions, and do you prefer software? What do you like in tech? Our, our general approach to tech has been to be, to be diversified, but we are more uh, favorable on the software side, partly for the, the reason you mentioned. But I think the, the most important uh, advice we would give investors looking at the technology sector is to remember uh, that uh, despite all the attention that the, the FANG stocks get, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of really high quality technology companies, probably mostly software, but also hardware across the market cap spectrum. And you don't need to take on that headline risk to own really good, above average growing uh, technology names. And so what do you worry the most about, especially as we get into earnings season? If you start to see a little bit of commentary here and there, what, what sort of keywords are you looking for? What sort of tone are you looking for? And I guess from which sectors? Yeah, I think for third quarter earnings, I would say our uh, our bar is pretty low on expectations. Mm. It's been great to see the financials coming out and generally Yeah, very beating. strong. Uh, I expect when we get into some of the more cyclical industrial companies, the news won't be so great would expect generally cautious, even downbeat guidance from some of those more um, cyclical companies. And we think that's setting the base for kind of low expectations going into, into 2020. So then why are you underweight some of the defensive sectors? I see in your note that your underweight staples, utilities, REITs, all companies, sectors, which you think would outperform if the environment did get a little bit shaky here. 
Well, because we think largely they've, they've kind of done their thing, right, mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a falling rate environment all year. And when we invest in equities, obviously we're looking for, well, let's just say, good growth opportunities at a reasonable price. A lot of the companies in these sectors uh, don't have terribly good organic growth rates, and we think a lot of them are no longer at reasonable prices. So uh, we just don't think it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, people are placing low interest rate or even recession bets by owning these companies, and uh, we think it's overdone. All right, so you look at something like the Democratic debate last night, a lot of healthcare talk. Does that influence, does all that rhetoric influence at all how you look at healthcare as an investable space one way or the other? You have to do some um, scenario building yeah. now, right? You, you can't assume you know what the election outcome is going to be next November, but you have to look at different scenarios. I think the market has been doing that uh, periodically throughout this year. It's why healthcare has underperformed, even though earnings have generally been right. pretty good. Um, so that's on the radar screen, but but right now we're actually on balance overweight in healthcare because we like the valuations. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll see what happens next in that space and many more. Great to have you with us. Dave Donabedian is Chief Investment Officer for CIBC Private Wealth Management based down, just down the Acela Corridor in Baltimore. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.